While I support what happened in the Trump case because I think it's so extreme, I think these, as a private decision, these companies should have a big thumb on the scale favoring free speech, even speech from politicians who may represent ideas that are uh, controversial and, and, and in some cases that are even uh, racist or taking views that most of us would find to be abhorrent. I'm Quinta Jurassic, Senior Editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 15th, 2022. Today, we're bringing you another episode of Arbiters of Truth, our series on the online information ecosystem. On November 19th, Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, announced that he would be reinstating former President Donald Trump's account on the platform. Though so far, Trump hasn't taken Musk up on the offer, preferring instead to stay on his bespoke website, Truth Social. Meanwhile, Meta's oversight board has set a January 2023 deadline for the platform to decide whether or not to return Trump to Facebook following his suspension after the January 6th insurrection. How should we think through the difficult question of how social media platforms should handle the presence of a political leader who delights in spreading falsehoods and ginning up violence? Luckily for us, Stanford and UCLA recently held a conference on just that. Alan Rosenstein and I sat down with the conference's organizers, election law experts Rick Hassan and Nate Persley, to talk about whether Trump should be returned to social media, and if so, how. We debated the tangled issues of Trump's deplatforming and replatforming, and discussed whether and when Trump will break the seal and start tweeting again. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 15th. Rick Hassan and Nate Persley on replatforming Trump on social media. So, Nate and, and Rick, thanks for joining. You had a whole fabulous conference uh, full of thoughtful analysis of whether Trump should come back to Twitter, shouldn't come back to Twitter. Uh, and then Elon Musk went and decided, based as far as we can tell on a Twitter poll, uh, it's not the most scientific way of doing public surveys, that Trump should be reinstated. N- not to stack the deck with a question, but is there any merit at all to how Musk went about making this decision? And and did you anticipate that it would be done in such a um, uh, procedure light way? Well, you know, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that at the time we held our conference, I believe it wasn't clear that Musk was actually going to go through with the deal. He was trying to back out. And then all of a sudden he's in and making changes on the fly. So I really wasn't surprised at all once he actually went through with the purchase that he was going to do this because he, he said he was going to do it. And I mean, I, I have no idea how scientific that Twitter poll is, especially given Musk's statement that Twitter was full of bots. And so who knows if there were bots voting, but I think the outcome was predetermined. He said he was going to restore Trump to Twitter if he bought the platform and we should have believed him when he said it. Yeah, I don't think that there's any reason to think that the poll was determinative here. And look, it's not like it was run like an election where we knew that it would end at a particular time and those would be the votes that were in. It was like, it was 51% at a given time. And so the people have spoken. And so then he gets reinstated. And so, look, it was, it, there, there are plenty of legitimate reasons to replatform uh, Trump. I, I don't think that the, you know, a poll on Twitter is, is sort of the decisive fact, was either the decisive factor for, for Musk or would have been the decisive factor, you know, were we to design a process for uh, reinstating him. So I'm curious, Rick, in particular, to get your thoughts 
What does it mean that Trump hasn't actually tweeted since being allowed to come back to the platform? He mostly seems to have stayed on his own platform, Truth Social, which you know is his, which is, I guess, nice for him. But he has much less reach, it seems. I mean, what, what do you think explains the fact that he's he's kind of refused the invitation? As I understand it, he has a contractual obligation to be exclusive to Truth Social, at least for a time. And I read somewhere, I'm not sure if this is correct, that there's like a six hour time period and then he could go on to uh, another platform. But, you know, that, that seems to lose its punch. If Truth Social ends up collapsing and there have been financial issues with that, then I expect he'll go back to Twitter. There's also, as Nate and I discussed uh, with others at the conference, there's the upcoming decision by Facebook. They have to decide, thanks to a decision of their oversight board, whether to reinstate Trump, whether the conditions that caused his deplatforming have changed. And that's going to happen in early January. So he's going to have lots of opportunities. But I think the contract, more than anything else, is the reason that he's uh, not tweeting right now. I think that's right. But I also think that, you know, it's if we get into the heat of a campaign, the reach of the audience is going to be too irresistible. Similarly, one thing we can't forget is that now that he is a candidate, he will likely try to use all these platforms to raise money. And and so political advertising is as much a part of the kind of story here as organic tweeting or, or posting. So those are those are also some critical decisions that need to be made by the platforms, whether he's going to have essentially full rights uh, that he that every other candidate would have. But I, I think that right now, yeah, there he doesn't see as as big a, an advantage of of tweeting what he has on True Social. But I imagine the calculus will change as uh, he wants greater amplification. So, so in short, so you you don't am I right that so neither of you take the fact that he has not come back to Twitter as really changing the importance of these ultimate decisions about whether or not he should be allowed, because ultimately, you know, whether through breaking his contract or for some other reason, when given the opportunity, we, we should expect him to use all the platforms available at his disposal. I mean, that's sort of what I heard you saying, Nate. Well, I, I agree. I think that is right. I think that nevertheless, I am surprised that even despite some of these contractual obligations, he hasn't returned to Twitter with a vengeance. But I think that that still might be in the offing. Now, I, I think it ends up being relevant to Facebook's decision because right now Trump's return to Twitter doesn't seem to have caused any of the harms that people had alleged would happen if he were returned to Twitter. And so if you're Facebook, then you're looking at this and you're saying, well, what, you know, what would really be the harm in doing so? I, I mean, that's just one factor among many. I mean, Facebook, I think, you know, is definitely ruining the day that it, it has to make this decision. It would prefer not to be the one to do that. But uh, ultimately, I think all of all of the questions about the not just the information environment, but the sort of security environment are going to be relevant to that decision. Well, I, I would just add that it could be that Trump is holding back precisely because he doesn't want to jinx his chances of being brought back onto Facebook. I, I mean, who knows how calculating Trump actually is, but that would be a smart decision to make to kind of let them replatform because then the cost of taking him off again would be higher. And let's not forget, and and uh, I think I made this point at our, our earlier conference, there's going to be a Republican House. 
they're going to have the subpoena power. They're going to be holding hearings on social media bias. They're going to be pulling in Facebook executives if uh, Trump is not replatformed, and, and maybe uh, even if he is replatformed. And so there's going to be a lot of political pressure for them to do it. So I fully expect, I'm willing to say it right here, I fully expect Trump will be replatformed in early January by Facebook, you know, barring some big news event with Trump before that time. We're gonna we're gonna hold you to that. We'll we'll come back to you on that in in early January. One one point I want to dig into a little bit more um, is this question of the effectiveness of deplatforming, which is something that we've touched on a little bit. But Nate, that was something you spoke about at the conference that uh, removing Trump from these major platforms had actually been more effective than you had expected. And I completely agree with you there. I've been really struck by that. I mean, I think it's difficult maybe to disentangle removing Trump from Twitter versus removing him from the presidency. But I'd be curious if you could just talk a little bit more for the listeners about what has led you to that conclusion and how that affects the calculus that you think platforms might want to go through if they were thinking through these problems carefully. So censorship works. That's one of the things that we've we've learned through this, which is that, yes, if you kick someone off the large platforms that, that where their audience gathers, that then they will uh, not be able to work around in ways that we might have assumed. And so so if you go back to the time of the deplatforming, I would have thought that either through Truth Social or through a separate blog or website, that the content that Trump would, would get out there would eventually be amplified either by his followers or, or allies on these other platforms. The platforms themselves actually acted against some of that attempt at circumvention. So maybe that's part of the story here. But it is remarkable, isn't it, that someone who was who really dominated social media for many years, then once the platforms kicked him out, was unable to uh, access that audience and get, uh, get, get, you know, amplify the message. Now, you're right that there are these confounding variables that he was no longer present. But remember that there was at least three weeks in there where he was deplatformed and and seemed to be silent while he was president, right before the inauguration. Uh, and so, I, I, you know, I, I think that th- there's a lesson here, which is that as much as kind of information or communication has a kind of hydraulic relationship to these platforms where it always finds a crack in the sidewalk like water, that the friction that you add by deplatforming is considerable and that it's not so easy to replicate that audience on the outside. I have a small quibble and a bigger quibble with what Nate said. The small, the small quibble is I, I reject the language of censorship. I believe that censorship is something that a government does. So if I decide that you know Nate sends me something to post on the election law blog and I decide not to post it, I don't think I'm censoring Nate. I think I'm making an editorial decision of editorial discretion. Now Nate has his own posting privileges, so he could get could get around that. Uh, but uh, I don't. I think I would reserve the language of censorship for decisions made by government actors. And I think private actors, just like Fox News, can decide not to put me on, which they have uh, a, a private platform. It's not censorship if they decide not to carry. Uh, some particular speech. M- my larger quibble is I, I just think it's impossible to know what would have happened, you know, if Trump had not been deplatformed in terms of the reach of his stuff. Certainly it would have been less, but remember, Trump had just encouraged an insurrection and he gave that speech uh, where he uh, seemed to be, we love you all, you know, where he seemed to be uh, welcoming 
those who are rioting at the Capitol and, and threatening uh, our, our government leadership. So, you know, I don't know what it would have been. And, and the last point I'd make is that, remember, it was not just Trump that was deplatformed, but there were a number of other accounts that amplified Trump that also ended up losing privileges on Twitter. And they're all coming back. And so, you know, it's not just Trump alone, but it's the kind of ecosystem. And, there, you know, a lot of the great research that came out of the project with Stanford and, and Washington, uh, University of Washington and others looking at how disinformation, election-related disinformation spread, pointed to what they called super spreaders of disinformation. So it was kind of a network of 20 or so accounts that were really responsible for the lion's share of, of amplifying this kind of stuff. So it's just really hard to know what would have happened. But but I agree that taking him off took a lot of the oxygen away. And I too am somewhat surprised. You know, I didn't think Truth Social was going to take off and be a major platform because it is so ideologically oriented. It was not going to be a mass-based platform. But I did think you'd end up seeing basically every Truth Social post being screenshot and posted on Twitter. And except for some journalists, you don't really see that so much. So, so a follow-up for, for both of you, and I'll start with Rick and then go to Nate. To the extent that we can call it censorship, we can call it deplatforming, but to the extent that this, as both of you pointed out, did seem to work, at least in the short term, I'm curious whether you think that that supports either side, to the extent that there are sides in this debate more, right? The, well, it works, so we should do it when there's a real threat. The other side being it works, so we really shouldn't do it because we want you know, robust discourse. Or, or do you think it just kind of heightens the contradictions, right? It doesn't help either side. It just makes this debate even more important and even more difficult on both sides. Well, these are private decisions. If Elon Musk wants to include Trump and Facebook wants to exclude him, I think that's totally up to them. I don't think that there should be government regulation. I don't think the government regulation of who should be on a platform and who shouldn't is even constitutional under the First Amendment. The others disagree. But but so I come to this as a, as a private decision. What should they do? And I think that it should be a last resort. There should be a series of warnings. There should be clear rules as to what's allowed. And you should only deplatform a politician in the event that the politician is engaged in a repeated pattern of advocating violence, propagating hate speech, or uh, continually spreading election disinformation. That would be the line, you know, if I were if I were making a policy choice as a private actor where I would draw the line, I think that's the best way. Because this does show the danger, and I worry about this less in the United States, but in other countries around the world, it does show the danger of using the pretext of uh, some kind of political crisis as a means to silence political opposition. So while I support what happened in the Trump case, because I think it's so extreme, I think these, as a private decision, these companies should have a big thumb on the scale favoring free speech, even speech from politicians who may represent ideas that are uh, controversial and, and, and in some cases that are even uh, racist or taking views that most of us would find to be abhorrent. So on, on the larger question as to how we think about the kind of aftermath of deplatforming to inform the decision of, of whether to, to deplatform, I, you know, I still think that you know, the fact that we learned that deplatforming works, right, that it has the intended effect of removing the audience and amplification, 
you know, that, that was always the assumption of the platforms when they made this decision. That's why they took it so seriously and, and were concerned about it. And so, you know, it, 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 is, it is an effective tool to be used against clear violators uh, of platform policies. One thing I would sort of caution people, though, is to think about what standard Trump violated and then how many other people would violate that standard as well. Because if it's election disinformation, the kind of hate speech that he engaged in, which is not like the core hate speech that violates the, the policies. I mean, we I, I don't want to sort of debate and, and, and wordsmith it, but, but the point is that the kind of language that appeared on Trump's Twitter account or other social media feeds is exactly the same as tens of thousands of other accounts. And so we can say, all right, well, you deplatform Trump because he causes, he has the possibility of causing greater harm because of, of how big his audience is. But then that's a new factor, right, that needs to be weighed into this about what the likelihood of harm is to, uh, as a result. And that, of course, is what, what the platforms were focusing on in the aftermath of January 6th. But as, as we explained at the conference, or as I explained at the conference, you know, the actual reasons for why he was deplatformed remain somewhat murky, right? What was the what was the speech that like put him over the edge? And so the fact that he said, as as Rick was mentioning, he has a video that says, We love you, go on home, right? That's you that's usually not gonna be violate either the glorification of violence policy or the um incitement policies, right? I mean, if your average person says uh, something like this. And so you know, you've got to read a lot into that language, which is fair. And the platforms did it in order to find him to be uh, violative. Uh, yeah, I would add that the moment when Trump encouraged people to come for wild protests in D.C., that's the moment I called for him to be deplatformed. And it wasn't January 6th, which I, I think it was appropriate to deplatform on January 6th. But I think once he started veiled uh, threats of violence in that way, and given his reach, uh, again, private decision, your mileage may vary. My view is that that was reason enough to take him off the platform. Well, again, so you see the veiled threats, right? So the question is, how thick does the veil need to be? And so, yes, if he says, come, let's storm the Capitol and kill people, that's clear. He doesn't say that. He says, you know, come to Washington. It's going to be wild. Now, again, I, I, I agree with you that, look, the platforms have the, have the power to do this, but they have to come up with a policy that would get at all of the bad actors that we're talking about without essentially, you know, censoring, I, I use the word censoring, with, without deplatforming a sizable share of, of, the, of Congress, <laughs> frankly, right? Because that, that's what we're, one should be concerned about is that you're going to have a large internet platform that's basically going to say that, Anyone who supports this candidate or who has spoken, you know, similar to this candidate is going to not have not allowed an account on the platform. Yeah. One one quick thing about the will be wild tweet. And then I, I know Alan has a, a follow up. I think it's it's very notable that the January 6th committee and its hearings over the summer was explicitly pointing to that tweet about January 6th, the be there will be wild as something that in retrospect, looking at all of the data after having conducted this investigation was really a sort of 
turning point or inflection point, whatever you want to call it, in terms of uh, people, extremist groups gathering to, you know, starting to plan to attend the rallies and attack the Capitol on the 6th. Of course, the platforms are making this call in the moment without having the benefit of all of that work. But I, I do think it's interesting that I certainly, you know, looking at that tweet at the moment thought, oh, that seems bad, but wouldn't have pinpointed it as, you know, if I were Twitter, this is the moment where I would have banned him. In retrospect, though, it does seem like it was hugely significant. And I think that kind of points to the the difficulty of making these calls in real time. Yeah, so the, there are a couple of things I want to pull out, especially in, in Nate's last remarks. I mean, I, I think this point about being very careful about what exactly it is that you would be deplatforming someone like Trump for, lest you end up bringing in a lot of other members of Congress is a very important point. And, and I think we can just get more concrete and think about, for example, the case of someone like Maxine Waters, right, who's a, a Democrat and has been known to say some sort of inflammatory language. Obviously, I think if you put in the context, it doesn't rise to the level of anything Trump has said. But for example, like after when, when during the trial of Derek Chauvin on the murder charge for George Floyd, um, you know, she said that if the the verdict comes back innocent, then the protesters should, quote unquote, get more confrontational. And she was like, roundly criticized, and I think fair, fairly so for, for those remarks. And, and I guess my question, and I'll start with you, Nate, is, you know, on the one hand, one might say, well, we don't want to make the, the, the language, you know, we don't want to make it too broad in terms of when someone like Trump gets deplatformed. Maybe we don't want to go as far as Rick would go, right? Because then we would sweep someone like Maxine Waters under, you know, within it. But it does seem to me the opposite is to say, Actually, we should have a much broader standard, you know, to so that a we could enforce this in a sort of bipartisan way against all sorts of folks, and also to err on the side of of speech that doesn't even come close to calling for violence or unrest, given the the difficult time that that we're in. So, just to start with you, Nate, I mean, do you think that that would be an acceptable compromise position, or do you think ultimately that would just chill too much useful? political speech under the First Amendment. Though, of course, again, being clear that none of this is government action, so this is all by analogy. You have community standards and they need to be enforced, right? There is no kind of presidential exception to either the incitement policy or the glorification of violence policy, just like with its nudity policies or something like that. Now, there are some times where, where they, you know, public figures, the so-called cross-check system, and there, there were sometimes two tracks of rules because you have to pay attention to candidates in, in certain ways. But, but on the, what the community standards themselves required, right, it's, it's a set of factors based on the text of the speech and, and the surrounding circumstances that would then lead to taking down of posts, filtering of posts, demotion of posts, or, or also uh, taking down of accounts. And so I don't want to get into the whataboutism with, with like Maxine Waters and like, I, I mean, really specifically, the kind of speech that Trump gave himself is now orthodoxy on, for a large section of the Republican Party. And so that if you're going to take down Trump, you run the risk of, and, it's, and, and it's with a consistent standard then you run the risk of going after uh, a large number of elites in, in one of the political parties on Twitter and on Twitter or Facebook or any of these other platforms. And that is, I think, a problem for these platforms to be in. Now, look, if you think that this is the be all and end all of saving the republic, right, and the extraordinary measures, just like, you know, we do in wartime when we, you know, think about speech in a different way when in the government sector, well, if, if you believe that with social media, then their their actions make sense. But I think this is a really, really difficult uh, line to draw, and we need to be careful 
about whether the standard that was applied to Trump is actually the one we want them to apply secularly to all users of the platform, both in the United States and around the world. I I have two responses here. One is, I don't think we have to apply the same standard to, you know, the guy who's got, you know, 16 digits after his name that may or may not be a person that has four followers as someone who is, uh, has millions of followers and is the leader of a political party. So I think we can say that just like the uh, Texas and Florida laws purporting to regulate social media apply only to large social media platforms, I think we can apply things only to those with major followings or something like that without, I mean, I think that's a bright line rule. If you have over a million followers or whatever, uh, standard. But, but Kyrus, then what? What does that mean? So, so, so when you have a lot of people followers, then a different set of community standards applies or we should interpret them in a different way? I mean, I, th- I think I see where you're going with this, and, and, and I, I may, might agree, but, but it, it's like there is one set of community standards. And the question is, what is it about the, the level of followers that then leads you to interpret violations and punishments in a different way? And, and certainly it's going to be something about the capacity and propensity for harm, right? That, that, that actual harm. But then that is a very specific sort of narrow range of the kinds of comments that would be in violation of these community standards, right? And it requires a pretty complicated analysis on the part of the platform to estimate whether a given statement is going to, to lead to harm because it has a great amplification because of the number of followers. Yeah. So I would analogize this to prosecutorial discretion. So the standard is the same, but you're going to pick the people who you want to make public examples of or who pose the greatest risk to society as the ones to prosecute. And you could say, well, you know, that's having them exercise judgment. Yeah, exactly. That's fine. I have no problem exercising judgment. And uh, I, again, in real time, I saw that wild tweet and I said, now is the moment to pull the plug. So some of us saw it. Now, if, if what this would mean is that you'd have large swaths of Republican elites of, 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 say, over a million followers who'd be kicked off the platform for amplifying Trump's calls to violence. That's not a problem with the platform. That's a problem with the Republican Party. And so I have no problem saying if a party has been captured by authoritarian elements as a private company, you don't need to be a part of that. Just like Toyota should not be making contributions to election deniers, right? It's the same kind of argument. Again, they're private parties. They can choose what they want to do. But I think here's a place to draw the line. And a lot of corporations drew the line and said, we're not going to give to those members of Congress who voted to reject the electoral college results from Arizona and Pennsylvania. Then, of course, they backtracked from it. Prosecutorial discretion, all of this is a question of discretion. And I think that we should have people, uh, corporations acting as good citizens, good corporate citizens, good individuals, and make responsible choices, kind of the opposite of the kind of slapdash approach to all of this that we're seeing now from Elon Musk. So so I think you can you, you perfectly justify the takedown of Donald Trump, but I don't think it can be done by because of something like prosecutorial discretion. That that scares me a little bit because that that ends up being like you you the the platform is in a somewhat unprincipled way um, going and selecting people for deplatforming some potentially in the heat of an election campaign. Now I think that it, it might make sense to state publicly that take something like the strike system that these platforms use, whether you get three strikes and, and then you're out. You say you might say for someone with a very large following, 
that when it comes to incitement or glorification of violence, instead of getting three strikes, you get one strike, you know, that, that we're, we're so worried about the potential here that we would say, but, but you have to be transparent about it, that, that that's the reason that you're, you're deplatforming them is because of their greater capacity to, uh, to cause real world harm. And then you'd have to have some indicia of that. And look, you know, this is true in, in First Amendment law also when you think about incitement. The, the difficulty is you never really know when incitement's going to happen until it's too late. And so um, it's all well and good to say that when someone invites people to Washington because it's going to be wild that we now we, we say either at the time you're willing to err on the side of preventing incitement to violence or that after the fact we're saying, oh, it was a clear signal. But those kinds of people on Twitter... You, say things like that all the time, some of them with very light, large followings. And so the question is, at what point do you want to be sort of over cautious with those particular accounts? I, I do agree that ex, ex ante announcement of standards and escalation of penalties based upon warnings is definitely the way to go. And even handedness. So if Biden would tweet the same thing as Trump, he would be t- treated the same way. I really like the the prosecutorial discretion analogy, actually, because it it reminds me of uh, the the great Robert Jackson speech, the federal prosecutor, which was uh, cited ad nauseum. I think it's fair to say during the Trump administration, uh, that has the famous line that the most dangerous power of the prosecutor is that he will pick people he thinks he should get rather than pick cases that need to be prosecuted. And I think that it gets to uh, obviously. The, the danger of that kind of system. And I think exactly what, you know, many, many Republicans, rightly or wrongly, have been claiming about these platforms. I do want to ask about the, the midterms, uh, because part of obviously why we're concerned about Trump being let back on Twitter, part of why I think it's concerning that other Republican figures, like, for example, Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake, are able to use these platforms to broadcast falsehoods is because of the threat of misinformation undermining election integrity, the threat of violence. On the other hand, the 2022 midterms, at least from my perspective, went pretty smoothly. I was certainly concerned about what might happen, especially given figures like Lake uh, promoting misinformation, reports about people with guns standing outside ballot drop boxes, also in Arizona. It was pretty violence-free. There was misinformation, but it didn't spread as broadly and as dangerously as it did in in 2020. And so I'm curious how that affects both your analysis of Trump's role on these platforms, because on the one hand, I could say, maybe our democracy is in less danger than we thought. So maybe letting him back on is less of a problem. On the other hand, maybe it was calmer because he wasn't there. So Nate, let me go to you first. And then Rick, I'm curious for your thoughts. So I actually think that the relative sort of peacefulness of the midterms is what's going to lead Facebook to return him to the platform. That actually in the in the run up to the election, particularly with the assault on Paul Pelosi, I thought there was going to be a you know good chance that they would still wait and see because the conditions of violence were such that it warranted him not being returned to the platform and had we seen significant violence on election day i think that the, the case would even be stronger now that the, since it went off without significant problems then I, I think that they're going to be hard pressed not to return him to the platform. Uh, I, I want, I know we'll get there, but I also want to emphasize this is not a binary decision like to return or not to return. And that's part of that. That in some ways is the most interesting question, which is what are the conditions under which he might be returned? 
uh, if any, and and what would be the process for for gradually reinstating him or gradually re deplatforming him? Uh, I think are, are certain uh, questions that are in the offing. But I do think the relative passivity of of what happened in the 2022 election does factor into the way the platforms are going to think about this. So I too am uh, heartened by the environment in the midterms. I thought it was really important that a federal district court issued an order uh, that stopped people with weapons uh, and tactical gear from standing at ballot drop boxes in Arizona. I think it was just one case uh, or two two related cases, Uh, but that was an important signal that the law is going to be there. I thought it was heartening, too, that many of the election deniers uh, those uh, who backed Trump's false claim that he actually had won the election conceded their elections. Lake uh, and uh, a couple of the Secretary of State candidates are notable exceptions, but they didn't get traction. And so uh, it leads me back to a question I often ask myself, how much is this a Trump-specific phenomenon uh, versus how much does Trumpism have legs? So, you know, you, you didn't really see Carrie Lake having the, the you know the power of of the masses behind her. It's not like there were there was rioting in the streets of Phoenix over the election results. But it was a midterm election. Trump was not on the ballot. Trump is potentially on the ballot in 2024, at least in the primaries, at least so long as he runs. And I, I don't think we're out of the woods. Uh, it's good that we don't have election deniers running elections in swing states. But we did see some counties uh, refusing to certify the votes and one of them having to go um, be sued in court. Uh, so we're not out of danger. What does this tell us about Trump and being replatformed? I think you're right that the causality issue is uh, really hard to measure here. Would there have been a greater potential of violence if Trump would have been out there egging people on about Carrie Lake's loss in Arizona? I don't know. Uh, let me just say one other thing on this, which is that we, we need to keep in mind that thousands of election deniers won office, right? It's not like just a few. Thousands had, and I, I mean, those who deny that the 2020, that Joe Biden was legitimately elected. So it, it's now part of, you know, the orthodoxy here that you would claim that the 2020 election was rigged. Uh, but yeah, I'm as heartened as all of us are that that the most virulent of the election deniers, the most high profile ones didn't end up winning. But, you know, we will we will wait and see for the reasons that Rick mentioned as to how significant that would be coming into 2024. So I want to move our conversation now to the question of sort of where do we go from here? I mean, it sounds like, well, we know that Trump is back on Twitter it sounds like for the reasons both of you have articulated, Trump will probably come back to Facebook. Uh, and so the one question is sort of what do all the other platforms do? And what I want to ask, and I'm going to start with you, Nate, is you know, does it have to be the same or should it be the same policy or principles across different platforms, you know, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, you know, whatever the case is? And, and, and you know, does that also depend in part on sort of something you said before, which is that, look, it's not a binary on or off. You can bring him back partially. You can have pre-review theoretically is something I remember you all talked about in the conference, which obviously has its own complications. Um, so I'm just sort of curious um, if you could get into a little bit more, uh, start with you and then to Rick about then a diversity of approaches going forward. So I think there are, are several different approaches you could take in reinstating him as well as in re-deplatforming if necessary. And so 
you, there are many half measures that you can do. One is that you only allow him to be on the platform, but you don't amplify any of the content. Another is you allow him to be on the platform in certain respects, but you don't allow him to pay for ads, which could be in some ways the most important thing, particularly Facebook. Trump, Trump is not really a bit, Facebook is not his preferred platform. Twitter certainly was. But when it comes to raising money as a candidate, Facebook is a much more effective uh, platform than other than other platforms. And I, and I think that, you know, that's one of the reasons he would definitely want to be on it. And I think that you could, as I mentioned at the conference, as you hinted here, you could have a kind of pre-review, pre-clearance idea. This is something that, that uh, Evelyn Dueck, my colleague at, at Stanford has also argued for on the idea that you could say, yes, you're on the platform, but we'll have a two hour review period for anything that you put up. And we should have, you know, full-time and professional employees who are in charge of these presidential accounts. And frankly, it's not clear to me, you might even want to apply that to all candidates, right? You could say that this pre-review for community standards violations, uh, what would be a prior restraint under First Amendment law and clearly prohibited to the government. But nevertheless, you could say, look, we're so worried as a platform of what candidates are going to do that we're going to, we're not going to allow instantaneous uh, posting. That seems uh, perfectly reasonable to me. And so that those are those are just some of the different ways that you could affect things on the front end. Then on the back end, you could say, "Look, you are you are reinstated, but here are the you know we're, we're going to have a one strike rule instead of a three strike rule for you, right? You know, um, and and be very clear about what the kind of system of probation would would entail. And so you could gradually you know have him on the platform as well as uh, have different rules that would apply once he was on there. And I don't just mean this for Trump. This could be true for anybody who's deplatformed that you need to have, is there some period through which or some process through which you can essentially earn your position back? I think that this raises interesting questions if you're Trump of why you would agree to special conditions to come back. And you could actually make it a whole issue that, you know, that they're treating you unfairly. No one has ever been treated more unfairly than I have by such a, a, a system. Um, I think the most important thing for the platforms to do that are going to restore Trump, and obviously Elon Musk is not going to do this, but those that are taking content moderation choices seriously is to articulate in advance what those rules are going to be, whatever they're going to be. Uh, here's how many strikes, here's what's allowed, here's what's not allowed, and and make those publicly available. One of the things we know about Facebook is that they had a different set of standards for their VIPs. They were allowed to do things that would have violated the terms of service, kind of the opposite of the point. I was saying hold them to a higher standard. It seems that Facebook was holding them to a lower standard. I think there need to be clear, articulated, not just articulable, articulated standards to apply. I mean, that gets to the question of of just how to articulate those standards, though. And I know this is something that, that you all talked about at, at the conference. I mean, is there a, a formulation that you have in mind other than saying something like, you know, no incitement to violence that perhaps seems easier <laughs> in retrospect, as we've discussed, to determine that it is ex anti and could also, you know, lead to those same accusations we've been talking about, about platforms making decisions, you know, picking and, and choosing perhaps unfairly. Is there a, a framework that you have in mind or, or a, a sort of a structure for how platforms might specify that? Well, l- l- let's just start with what, what might be an uncomfortable fact, which is it's not clear to me 
that Trump's speeches on January 6th or in the lead up actually violated the community standards of the platforms. I mean, this is something that is like we can make arguments back and forth. We certainly are going to need um, evidence extraneous to the speech itself in order to come to that conclusion. And so, you know, if I today were to say, come to Washington, it's going to be wild. Clearly, that's not a violation of the community standards. You have to say, well, given everything that's led to this point, there's a greater likelihood of violence and using the word wild, which is otherwise perfectly fine on the platform, now seems like it's it's saying, let's go and, and uh, invade or kill people or something, you know, classic declarations of incitement. Those, those hoops that you have to jump through that I just described are, you know, w- ones that are extremely fraught. And again, you have to think about the, because you said, well, can we do something with the standards? It's like, no, you can't do anything with the standards. The standards are what they are. They're going to apply internationally to all kinds of, of figures. You're going to either have to de- develop a bespoke set of standards for either this political leader, political leaders in general, or political leaders that you think are going to are, have a greater likelihood to incite or to cause law breaking or, 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 or physical harm. And so, you, I mean, look, for example, at incitement standards in the law and then look, for instance, even at what the January 6th committee is going to end up trying to to deal with. It's extremely difficult to tie a particular speech, say, that Trump gave to what ended up happening. That's not to say that it wasn't perfectly in line with it, right? And I think we could, as private platforms, come up with, with, with rules that are extremely risk averse. But um, but those aren't the rules that they have because these are rules that are applying outside the context of elections, outside the context of insurrections, have to apply in India and Brazil as well as uh, in the United States. And so I, I don't think I mean, they've thought through these issues of um, uh, of how to refine the community standards and, and they've come up with what they they have. And frankly, most of the platforms are kind of have converged over the last 10 years to a very similar uh, type of community standards. So. I actually wrote up what I think the standard should be for purposes of this conference, and people can find this on if they search SSRN. I wrote a piece called "Donald Trump Should Remain Deplatformed from Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, Despite the High Bar That Platforms Should Apply to the Question of Deplatforming Political Figures." And here's my standard. I'll just read it. Uh, Given the strong interest in free speech and access by voters to the speech of candidates, office holders, and other significant political figures, platforms should impose a very high bar to the question of removal or exclusion. Candidates should face removal or deplatforming only if they pose a significant risk to the stability of democracy or foment hatred that poses a significant risk of causing social strife or violence. In particular, candidates should be excluded from platforms only if they show a consistent pattern of one, suggesting violence as a means of taking power or resolving election disputes, two, falsely claiming without reliable evidence that an upcoming or past election is or will be stolen or rigged, and three, engaging in hate speech against racial, ethnic, religious, and uh, sexual or other groups. So I think Trump violated those rules well before January 6th and would have been deplatformed under those rules. All right, let's leave it there and, and give you the last word, Rick. Uh, thanks to both of you for, for joining us. And we will see if Trump ends up back on Twitter in the coming months. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth. A Lawfare podcast series on the online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare podcast feed and in our separate Arbiters of Truth podcast feed. The Lawfare podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. 
You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. This podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>